Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Arts for the Health of It. I am your host, Richard Wilmore. And I'm your other host, Constanza Rader. And I'm so excited about our guest today. We're talking with Vijay Gupta. He's one of the founders of Street Symphony. He's a violinist. He's been a MacArthur Fellow. And I, Richard, I read his, when I read his bio um, preparing for today, I started tearing up because I'm already having an emotional day. And this is just uh -oh. going to send me over the edge. I can already tell. <laughs> <laughs> warning so, everyone warning stuns war on edge cry tears warning yeah i just believe in what he's doing so much and i can't i can't wait to share to learn more about his journey and to share his work with our listeners and he, and it's one of those topics where you know when you think about who does art or who's drawn to art or the arts uh you know, it's not for kids. It's not just for professionals. It's not just for the stay-at-home moms. Like this is a population that you may not necessarily would know that would even be interested in it. You know, you have you have certain ideas of like what people are like, and the fact that he's gone in there and made such an amazing program. I'm so excited uh, to get him out here. I wish we could just play all the videos on their website all instead of instead of us us talking. Uh, but go to their website and check yes. them out and, and see everything that they're doing. Although we didn't even tell you, I don't even think, did we tell them the name of Street Symphony? I've said Street Symphony. Okay, we, good. We'll hear all about it. Okay, good. So let me uh, give you a brief synopsis of Vijay. Vijay Gupta is a violinist and social justice advocate, an esteemed performer, communicator, educator, and citizen artist. Gupta is a leading advocate for the role of the arts and music to heal, inspire, provoke change, and foster social connection. He's the founder and artistic director of Street Symphony, a nonprofit organization providing musical engagement, dialogue, and teaching artistry for homeless and incarcerated communities in Los Angeles. So we're going to uh, welcome him to the show. Are you ready? Let's do it. Come along with me, and I know you'll see that a song changes everything. Hello, sir. I'm just going to move you over here. Hi, Hi there. DJ. Welcome. Hi. I know Stanzi probably has 75,000 questions, and I feel like <laughs> Stanzi's not feeling well today, so I'm going to let her do her questions in case oh, she falls asleep. And then <laughs> if she does, then I'll pick up with my questions. That sounds, I guess that sounds fair. <laughs> well, <I'll, laughs> I mean, I'll interject, but. Perfect. I Yeah, I have so many questions, but I want to start with um, your story. How, how, how did you come to this work? Um, why homeless population? Um, what's your background? Yeah, just, just share your story. <laughs> sure. Well, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's such a joy to be here. And I love thinking about the intersection of, of arts and healing, especially right now. I think, you know, with the pandemic being so present in our minds, I think we've all been asking this question of what are we healing towards? You know, are we mm. healing back towards a world that didn't work for us? Or are we healing towards transformation? And what does healing towards transformation actually mean? And I really believe that artists not only make change in the world, but that artists make the world, period. Mm. Um, the way that we look at the world, the way that we pay attention to the world changes 
the world, just like the quality of attention that we pay to the world changes the way that we see it. And I would actually even say in relationship and dialogue with that world, it changes that world itself. So for me, I am the son of two people who emigrated from Bengal, from the city of Kolkata in India in the mid 1970s. Um, I grew up in the mid Hudson Valley of New York, this beautiful, beautiful part of New York um, that was wild and lush and beautiful. And um, something that I you know, never grew up noticing, but realized now is that I was probably the only brown kid in the school I went to in a 40 mile <laughs> radius. And in a strange way, I've kind of lived multiple identities my whole life because my parents were not the richest people, but they also weren't the poorest people. And I grew up around a lot of white poverty um, and was an outsider in that community. And then when I started playing the violin, I was lucky enough to study at uh, amazing schools in New York City where I was also the outsider because we were the maybe not so rich people studying at Juilliard or the Manhattan School of Music or eventually the Yale School of Music where I you know, studied later on. So for me, my identity was always structured around being an outsider and an insider at the same time. My dad was a travel agent who spoke multiple languages. So I grew up hearing him talk across boundaries and barriers. And you know, when I think of myself as an artist now, I realize that my superpower comes from being able to speak multiple languages. Like I speak fundraiser, I speak hmm. grantor, I speak donor, <laughs> I speak social worker, I speak classical violinist, I speak music musicologist and historian. Um, and I also speak skid row and I speak recovery. And um, I speak about you know, healing because my undergraduate was actually in biology pre-med. Um, I was really interested in neuroscience. I worked at two laboratories as a research assistant during my undergraduate, uh, one at the City University of New York Hunter College, where I was studying spinal cord regeneration, the biochemistry behind spinal cord regeneration uh, after severe injury. Uh, and then I was also studying um, the biochemical pathways of Parkinson's and Alzheimer's diseases in neurodegenerative situations and kind of learning about learning about the biochemistry of the brain. But what was fascinating in working in these labs was two really profound things. One, that all the Harvard postdocs that I was working with at the Harvard Institutes of Medicine, they were like, what the hell are you doing here? If you're a musician, if you're a, if you're an artist, go be an artist. Like, Aww. we wish we could go be a musician. And like, I use that as ammunition to like, guard myself against my mother, who of course wanted me to be like a Dr. Gupta. Um, and, um, you know, for, for me, uh, I think finding identity, finding meaning, finding belonging, has always been a work of art. Um, I want to change the conversation around how we engage and think about the arts in our lives, not as the dressing of the salad, not as something that we add to the plate as dessert afterwards, not as a commodity or a luxury, but as the plate itself, as the mm. structure and the container of meaning. Belonging is the longing to be right? It's the longing to be seen. It's the longing to be loved. And we have to create belonging. And I think artists, you know, whether we are art makers or we are artists by the policies we make or the artists by the families we make or the artists by the lives we make, we're all artists and we're all creating belonging in whatever way that we can. So I'm going to pause my, my sort of answer to your question there with, you know, 
and being an artist has helped me create a way to belong in this world. Oh my gosh, there's so much to unpack. Like I'm art, I knew I knew this was gonna be an emotional episode for me. I just resonate so deeply with everything you're saying, and um, that's one of the reasons we exist as a podcast is to, you know, shift how people view the arts so that's in a more central um, viewed more centrally, and you know, a lot of the um, my obsession is really looking at anthropology and ethnology and you you, you mentioned um your musicology background and um there there's this inextricable link between art and love that art and belonging and mutuality and community they're they grew up together in human history and we have this culture that is more divided and um, individualistic and separated from each other than we've really ever had in human history. And then we wonder why um, we have these mass shootings that have happened, that continue to happen. <laughs> we, why we have just the political divide and so much this um, epidemic of loneliness that is killing people. Um, and we need our artists we need art we need that what you say that that gift of attention that we bring to our particular corners of the world um we need that back it's part of our birthright as humans um and you're doing it in such a beautiful and tangible way um with a commu with communities that are often overlooked and seen as outcasts and I would love to hear about what brought you to the homeless community, what brought you to Skid Row, um, how you formed your organization, um, and the impact you see that music has in that community. Mm -hmm. So I moved to Los Angeles from the East Coast in 2007 uh, because I joined the Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra. Um, and that was sort of my way of, um, you know, it, it, it was a dream job. Um, it just wasn't my dream. And it was something mm. that it took me years to realize that uh, I had climbed this ladder, uh, you know, by everyone else's narrative than my own. And, and the second or third year that I was living in Los Angeles, um, I encountered a community called Skid Row, which is a 50 square block uh, area of downtown Los Angeles, which is the largest concentration of unhoused people living in America today. Um, on any given night upwards of, 11 to 12,000 people sleep on the streets of downtown Los Angeles. Um, Countywide, that number is around 86,000 people. Um, there's a revolving door between homelessness and mass incarceration in the largest county jail system on the planet, which is the LA mm -hmm. County Jails. Um, the LA County Jails are a billion dollar jail and Twin Towers Jail in particular um, is effectively the nation's largest psychiatric institution. Um, and so I encountered Skid Row because of a musician, a man named Nathaniel Anthony Ayers, who was the subject of a very famous book called The Soloist, which later became a movie. And a number of my colleagues in the LA Phil were close to Nathaniel because they had actually gone to Juilliard with him. Nathaniel was one mm. of the first black men to ever attend the Juilliard school in the 1970s. And he had a breakdown, dropped out, was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and treated with shock therapy, Thorazine, and handcuffs at Bellevue Hospital. Mm -hmm. um, and Nathaniel was 
an incredibly gifted double bassist. And in 2008, 2009, he was, um, you know, a really kind of recognizable presence in Skid Row because he would push around a shopping cart filled with musical instruments and he'd just set up on a street corner and play. And eventually we would invite him to the hall and he would invite us back to Skid Row, but we never really went back to Skid Row with him. We would make him come to the hall to play for us because that's where we felt safe. And slowly hmm. I started to visit Nathaniel in Skid Row and I started to just make music with him and I was never really teaching him anything. I was just having a conversation with him through music. And that was one of these things that I noticed that Nathaniel and I did not have a common language at all. He was this strapping, tall, handsome, scary man who um, at times terrified me and at times charmed me and could recite every Beethoven opus number by memory. And we just play together. Um, and we started just playing in this, you know, courtyard in Skid Row. And I remember it was my, it was like my 22nd birthday and people, uh, you know, Steve Lopez, who wrote the book on Nathaniel, brought me a cake and people were looking at the cake. And I was so self-conscious because I was like, I, how do I like, how, how can I eat this cake here when there's hundreds of people in a courtyard looking in at me just with this giant sheet cake in front of me? And, and it was this kind of thing of, of realizing that there was more to this community than people who were broken. You know, social workers used to say to me, people come to Skid Row to die. And, mm. um, you know, uh, Skid Row is a place that, you know, is, is horrifying, open prostitution, open drug trade. Um, it's a place where people often overdose and die on the streets and are found in their tents in the morning and they've passed away. Um, and so I started reaching out to social workers, clinicians, therapists, eventually state and county prisons and jails uh, to just play. And the playing didn't have any other agenda to it. Uh, there was no intention to, to heal or fix or change people. It was just an offering. It was just to say, uh -huh. I want to make music here. If I'm making music on Bunker Hill to thousands of people who are paying hundreds of dollars a ticket, that art, that music doesn't only belong in that place. The art also belongs in Skid Row. And I didn't really know why yet. But what started to happen is the audiences in Skid Row, the, one of the very first events we had was at a clinic, a mental health clinic in Skid Row. The audiences would stand up and shout sometimes in the middle of movements. And at first, you know, it, it, you'd play, play, be playing like a Beethoven string quartet. And someone would just put their hand up in the middle of the movement and like their hand would be like six inches from my face because we were sitting so close to people. And I would call on her after we finished and she'd just tell us her story, you know, and, and her story was totally linked to the music that we were playing. And it was mm -hmm. totally linked to the story that Beethoven was thinking of when he wrote that music. And so this music was no longer written by like some dead old white guy. It was music that was living, breathing nourishment. Um, and that's the way that I, as an artist, felt about music. But I could never communicate that in a hall mm. to an audience that sat in the dark. It was much easier to communicate that to an audience sitting in a clinic because they were right there. And that was the same thing I felt in a shelter or in a county jail. And eventually, what started to happen is that people in our audience would say, hey, what's your story? What's going on with you? Where are you hurting? What's what's going on in your life? And it's the first time I would ever ask myself that question because as an artist, I just saw myself as a product. I just saw myself as be here, be perfect, be bulletproof, play the music and make it happen. And then um, that narrative changed when I'm to Skid Row. 
you were you said you were in your early 20s when this when you first started that's right yeah so i joined the la philharmonic when i was 19 and then i started street symphony as a project uh, about a year and a half later so i was in my early 20s i was you know really asking questions of what does this mean i, I never had an idea of starting a nonprofit or making a thing of this <laughs> what's what was the reaction from friends and family when you tell them kind of your idea and what you wanted to explore it was very mixed. There were people who said there's no point playing for those people. Wow. There's no point. There's no point for us to play for them. You might as well use high school students. That's what some members of the LA Phil said to me. Or wow. certain people would say, certain people would say, you know, be safe. You know, don't 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 go down to that place because you know that it's not safe to go down there. Um, and then there'd be people who were already playing benefit concerts, and I would say, well, why don't we go a little bit further than just the sterile benefit concert. Can we actually lean in a bit more and play? You know, if we're going to play music to raise money for those people, why don't we just play for those people? Hmm. And what started to eventually happen is that the otherness of those people changed. And, you know, I started to see myself as kind of like a Pied Piper, you know, both for the homeless community of Los Angeles, but also for my colleagues. I realized that this work wasn't only about fixing or healing one pole. It was about bringing both poles into relationship with one another. And the same thing goes for our donors, you know, and for our the people who fund our work, because there is a kind of funding system around the arts, which is always around the noblesse oblige, right? Like art is this product that belongs on the stage. There's nothing wrong with that funding model, but when it comes to funding so-called outreach, it's to say, well, those indigent people should have that thing too. There's the otherness of charity. Right. <laughs> and I, I really I really wanted to challenge that because our concerts, actually we stopped calling them concerts because they became conversations. The music became incidental to the conversation that we were having and the conversation became a way of developing a relationship. So much to unpack there. It is really interesting listening to the reaction that people have to this type of work. And it's very telling to how we view people in different situations in our society as, as separate of like, oh, that's that's a thing that happens to other people and not me. <laughs> and um, I mean, even in the work that we do, working with um, pa patients that are seriously ill in hospitals, uh, I've had people like especially when I was early on in talking about what I was doing and working with cancer patients, and so I, people would be like, "Oh, well, they're gonna die anyway. So why are you? Why do you bother playing for them? Why don't you play for like people that are gonna get well?" And I'm like, "Wouldn't let's let's pause. <laughs> Wouldn't you want someone to come and play beautiful music to you as you're dying? Like, wouldn't you want?" beautiful music and, and connection and, and community. Isn't that something we all want? Like, yeah, we're by that logic, like no one should get music because we're all going to die. <laughs> like, that's, that's ridiculous. Or we should all um, get music because we are all going to die. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's that, it's that piece too. I, I think one, one thing I've learned in the last 11 years of street symphony is that the separateness is a construct. Yeah. Any, anything where we say, that's not me. Yeah. That's an act of separation, fragmentation, and I think it's an act of violence because yes. it's also an act of self-abandonment. 
We ostracize and criminalize the people we call fragile and vulnerable because we're not yeah. willing, we're not, we're not willing to deal with our own pain. We're not yes. willing to deal with our own Free. pain. And and you know, the truth is that when you say that's not me, you're negating a part of yourself. Yes. And so we then create policies around that negation. We create structures around that negation. We create cities around that negation. The fact that Skid Row could exist a mile away from Walt Disney Concert Hall is a masterclass in this concept. It's a masterclass in structural violence and how structural violence comes from othering and from othering predominantly poor black people. And so this, this you know, what you, you actually mentioned this, Stanzi, about anthropology and ethnology. In indigenous cultures, there was no such thing as a performance. There was right. no such thing as, as, oh, we're gonna sit down now and make art. Art was connected to life. Yep. And I would love for us to find ways to return to that concept. Yes. I I call my <laughs> I called my sister earlier today because I was reading an ethnology book about art and it was talking about the role of artification around um, infant um, infant parent bonding and infants uh, feeling connected with their community from the very earliest um from their very earliest ages. And um, I was reading and it was talking about some of some of these cultures where there's 14 essentially adults and caregivers for one infant and they're all like passing them around and taking care of them. And my sisters, we're all, we're all moms now. And so, and we're already always bemoaning, like, this is not the way we're supposed to raise children in these little house boxes that we call houses and we just, sit here by ourselves with our infant and get overwhelmed. Um, and like, that's not how we were designed. And I got to that part in the book and I just cried and I called my sister and I was like, it's all messed up. How do we break down these walls? This, you know, and it, I like, it's such a, it would, it would require fundamental shifts in our culture. And how do we do that? And I, I would love to hear your answer about the like what would your dream be like if the arts could help break down these barriers of otherness and separateness and restore that sense of um interdependentness um mm. versus just this um radical independent i don't need anyone no one needs me kind of mm -hmm. kind of sense yeah so there's a, a concept in the sort of indigenous cultures of Mexican music, especially in the Son Jarocho cultures. And I should mention, you know, street symphony started off as classical, but we started to then get uh, uh, requests from amazing jazz and mariachi and West African drumming and choral groups. And often these groups were comprised of people who had lived in Skid Row. So we have a West African mm. drummer drumming ensemble who's led by a man named Ray Lewis, who's now on our team at Street Symphony, who was formerly incarcerated, would formerly be strung out, you know, high sleeping on the street. And he'll openly come to Skid Row and say, I was here. I was one of y'all. And now when he's playing, he is the story. He is the healing. Mm. And when I think about um, the number of friends I have in recovery who return to Skid Row, um, that reframes how Skid Row is. You know, Skid Row is no longer that place where people go to die, but Skid Row is a recovery zone, right? Mm -hmm. To think about these, the importance of recovery zones, not only for people who are unhoused or severely ill, but for ourselves too. So this concept in Son Habucho culture is something called compromiso, mm -hmm. 
And compromiso is, you know, com and promiso, so with the promise. And so there was this idea that artists, shamans, meaning makers would be allowed to go away and separate themselves from society to be witnesses, to be channels, to be the metabolizers of everything the society was going back to. So they'd cultivate this gift, but the promise was that then they would return and they'd return to the community and share what they had learned from being on the mountain, from being in solitude, from what they've created. So there's this idea of co-nourishment happening. So the separateness of putting art on the stage actually is also an act of violence to say the art mm. only belongs in the stage or the art only belongs in community. It belongs in the balance between mm. these two things. So I feel that we need to make fundamental shifts rooted in our senses about how we break down those walls of separateness from how we see the world, how we listen to the world, how we feel about the world, um, and then how we walk our talk, you know, how we are developing artistic practices in our solitude that also reflect how we practice in community, right? So we have to find both ways to practice. There's this kind of pernicious hierarchy of saying, well, art that happens in community would never belong on the stage of the concert hall. And I say bullshit. You know, mm. that, that's that's a construct that is made because of the way that we have to commodify the arts. But if we let go of that and you say, no, I'm going to play with my fullness and my wholeness and integrity in all the places I go to, um, then we're demanding something more, right? We're literally remembering our society back together. We're putting the pieces back together. I'm going to need a minute with that. Um, Richard, let's <laughs> soak that in. I would love to hear about the things you've heard from the people you work with. I imagine some of them are the same way that when you told your friends and family, hey, I'm going to do this and you show up and the people are like, what are you doing here? Mm. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So, you know, this, this is an interesting question because a lot of the time, you know, charity and outreach is rooted in making people a special occasion. And I would even actually go so far as to say this is my criticism of activism and justice as well. And, and part of what, why I have, um, you know, some question marks about around being a, you know, social justice advocate or being called that. Because the truth is that when I go to Skid Row, the last thing I'm going to say to people is that I'm here to be an activist for you or I'm here right. to be a, a, a healer for you. What people in Skid Row have told me what they want is you know, they don't want my guilt, they don't want my shame, they don't want my, you know, sort of um, this this questioning of like, what what does this all mean? They just want a relationship, you know? And so very early on, it's in, you know, performing at Street Symphony, the audiences would love what we did. You know, there was never a question mark of saying, oh, well, will those people love Beethoven? We got standing ovations and people in jails pumping Bartok, you know, because they just, they loved it. They loved the fact that someone was there, but there was also a sadness and an emptiness behind that applause because there was also the duration of, will you ever come back? And that yeah. question was never asked, you know, until I really made relationships with people. You know, we had social workers who said to us, the best time for therapy was right after a street symphony concert. Um, but the question that people would often ask was, when will I feel like this again? I forgot that I could feel this kind of joy. Why don't I feel this every day? And that's, you know, that led us at Street Symphony to make 
a very clear decision to not scale our organization to other cities and franchise our organization because we wanted to say, no, we're going to be in relationship with these five partners and we're going to go weekly uh, to these organizations as opposed to saying we're going to spread ourselves thin and scale because that's the sexy thing to say to funders, right? Um, but the other side of things was being able to hear the difficult feedback from people who we were in relationship with because we'd come and play a big, you know, event on Thanksgiving. And actually it was Ray who pulled me aside and said, hey, BJ, you know, you should come back tomorrow, man, because there's gonna be piles of turkey in the street that are six feet high that are rotting and rats running through it. What the fuck are you gonna do then? Like mm. show up, yeah. you're gonna show up and show up. So it's to say, you know, there's a lot of, Com there's a lot of complexity here because of course we're deeply appreciated in the Skid Row community, but there's this underlying piece of the wound here. The real wound is abandonment. Mm. It's that people have been abandoned over and over. And you know, when wow. you trace back trauma, that's usually around a parent and a parent can abandon a child even if they're with that child, you know, not seeing someone truly fully, even if you're with them all the time is an act of abandonment. So how do we come to that place of communion and relationship um, and mutuality? So what did you do about the piles of turkey? Well, what we started to do <laughs> is, first of all, to admit that we couldn't come every day. That was a very important thing. Nice. And to admit, those, to admit those boundaries, to say that, ah, you know what? We're not social workers. We're not clinicians. We're not therapists. We're not here to fix or heal people. We have to come as in that act of compromiso, right? We have mm. to come with our band boundaries intact, but we also have to come as good partners and good neighbors. So, you know, we started to partner with clinics and shelters and to play on the streets as well. So you know, Skid Row is an interesting ecosystem. There is the street level unhoused community who live in tents. There's the institutional community who live in shelters and clinics and county jails. And then there is the permanent supportive housing, the SRO community who, still live in Skid Row, but aren't homeless and don't live in institutions. And so those three communities come together and those three communities are differently resourced. So on one hand, it's to say that there's a part of our job is to take the unhoused community on the street and say, look, if you're tired of being tired and you want a place to live, like there are also institutions and shelters who we work with who have resources. So there's that kind of, you know, again, like Pied Piper aspect of saying, hey, if you want to come in, there are places for that to happen. But then it's also to say that we can't be the only music makers and the only meaning makers. So the real work of Street Symphony is to allow the community to step into a place of self-agency where they see themselves and they're the art makers and they're the ones who are creating the vision of the life that they want to live into and that we're mutually creating that vision together. Uh, so it's to come back and say, okay, here's our work of art that we made. Now, what does that mean to us? And how are we going to live our lives because of that piece of art existing in the world? Mm -hmm. Again, I'm going to need a minute to process so much, so much good stuff there. The, oh my gosh, what, where do I even ask a question? Richard? What? <laughs> What have, I mean, this list I'm sure is super long, but what have, what are some of the major things that you've learned 
maybe about yourself or about the world around you through what you're doing and through the arts. Mm -hmm. So there is a word from my culture, from, from my Sanskrit and, and Hindu culture called sadhana. And sadhana, you know, is used as a sort of, you know, if anyone practices yoga, you have a yoga sadhana. It really a sadhana is just like a daily practice, essentially. You can have a running sadhana. I have a violin sadhana. Um, it's to say that the values that we stumble upon in our lives, whether those are values that we're raised with or values that we learn and that we see, you know, those values kind of come to us as momentary insights, like, oh, wow, like, I'm a person who really values honesty or integrity. And integrity, I think, is even more nuanced than honesty, because integrity is wholeness, like living an integrated life, being able to see complexity. That's a value that I really care about. So how do you practice that value? Right? I mean, that that's that's the question that I think of is there are people in Skid Row who practice the values of relationship and recovery and integrity in ways that take my breath away. They yeah. deeply inspire me and they're deeply vulnerable with how much they struggle in that practice. And so I feel like the call for all of us is to develop a sadhana, to develop a practice. And that practice can look like anything. But the truth is that that practice has to make us feel deeply uncomfortable. You know, one mm. of the books that I'm, the books I'm reading right now is this book called The Comfort Crisis. It's by Michael Easter. And, and um, I just actually posted something on Instagram today of, of me trying, attempting a very heavy squat with my trainer and totally failing. I fell flat on my ass. Ouch. And, you know, for, for <laughs> me, yeah, ouch is right. For me, um, you know, working out is a sadhana because um, I used to be severely overweight. I was very unhealthy when I was you know, trying to run Street Symphony full-time, speak full-time, be in the LA Phil full-time. And I ended up resigning from my job in the orchestra because I was so burned out and I was well over a hundred pounds overweight. And over the last three years, I've, I've shed that weight, put on muscle, but that has been constantly a practice of discomfort. So for now, I, I, I feel like you know, this roundabout answer to your question is how do we create a sadhana of discomfort where we lean into finding that edge, you know, and I think a lot of the world that we live in right now is telling us to necessarily take care of ourselves and to, you know, remove ourselves from, from, uh, uh, you know, um, self-compromising situations or dehumanizing situations. Um, but self-care is also the end of self-harm. And the end of self-harm is often really uncomfortable because it requires us to look yeah. in the mirror and see our own codependency with ourselves. Yeah. Um, so I'm not really sure if that's the answer you bargained for. <laughs> but that's, that's where I'll pause for now. That's, that's, I figured that's what you were going to say. <laughs> right, he had it all to sort it out. Yeah. Yeah, it, it makes me think about the... Oh, sorry, Richard, did you have a follow-up? No, go for it. It makes yeah. me think of um, arts education because in arts education you're constantly in a place of discomfort if you have a good teacher mm -hmm. right <laughs> like you're constantly in this place of working on skills that you're not you're you're not there with and it's uncomfortable like learning like for those um neural pathways to develop and that struggle is where we grow right so i feel like it's there's almost this practice of 
um, say the word for me again. The sadhana. S A D H A N A. Yeah, sadhana. Sadhana. Yep. It's almost a sadhana. This practice that's developed around discomfort and leaning into that and doing and also it builds trust too that the discomfort mm, ends mm. that as you lean in and as you get enough repetitions um that there there is change that is possible and that the change mm. only happens through discomfort yeah. and it, it makes me think of just the role of arts education um in kind of forming this new this this new world are really kind of trying to re re reclaim some of our our birthright as humans um because i think there's there's an edge in formalized higher higher ed and arts education um that perpetuates some of the problems that we have in within how we view the arts in our culture but i think they could be such a powerful part of the solution and i wonder mm. you know your perspective on that well there's one thing that actually brings me back to something that we touched on earlier in our conversation is the divide between people right the, the ways in which we feel so pushed away so isolated fragmented polarized um in in living out what we value Right. But I also feel like, um, you know, discomfort is the great equalizer, uh, similarly to the way that longing, longing is such a huge equalizer. Like we're all longing to be seen and loved and to belong. And also at the same time, if we're all struggling and striving towards something, there's belonging in that, too. Right. And so I think about some of the most interesting talks I've given, re given recently, which are actually for companies. Um, I've been speaking for a number of the Fortune 50 companies. And what's so interesting is that the ways in which these teams run is like chamber music, is deeply collaborative and deeply uh, honest and rigorous and really exciting. And I love talking about decentralized leadership in the corporate world because I see that as an incredibly artistic practice and and you know I, I think one of the challenges you know to now answer your question around how, how do we shift this sort of the the cap in the narrative around where arts education lives and breathes is frankly to change the way that we think about the arts not as a thing but rather as a way of being right as a lens what if we ch shifted the way that we think about the arts as a means of teaching collaborative enterprise, of teaching discipline, of teaching, um, you know, the invention of new techniques and skills so that we can actually articulate emotionally or with words what we're trying to strive for. Those are human skills. To say that arts end when we put those skills into a thing on a stage to be sold, that for me is where you know that, that that's where we lose the equation right i, th I think about um lewis hyde's amazing book the gift where he talks about how all art making is a gift and the reciprocal loops of gift giving that indigenous communities had like the potlatch ceremony for example where they would just give and give and give and give to the point where they had nothing left um i think about that also in terms of what the artist is right like when i perform there is nothing left of me on the stage. I should leave it all out there. There's no way you can pay for that, right? Yeah. But the truth is that there's also no way that that can be paid for because it was already paid for by the currency of attention that the audience paid to me 
as the person who they were looking at. And, and I think that this kind of shift in saying that, oh, your art's not over when you've made the thing. <laughs> Rather, your art has begun when you've given the thing away. Mm. Such a good answer. <laughs> Such a good answer. <laughs> I know you're pressed for time. Otherwise, you're going to be here until midnight talking to us. <laughs> so I hope you come back. But I also uh, would love to know, uh, what people can do or how people can support Street Symphony and how they can they can connect with you. Right. So uh, you can find me um, quite active on Instagram at Gupta Violin. Um, you can find Street Symphony at www.streetsymphony.org. We are a nonprofit organization powered by listeners and viewers like you. So if you'd like to make a contribution, we'd gratefully receive it. Um, you know, we're also launching a national live stream series. Of course, every one of us started live streaming during the pandemic. We're actually not going to stop live streaming. So now you can watch Street Symphony events that happen um, from the Midnight Mission or from the Downtown Women's Center or the Weingart Center in, in Skid Row. Um, we also uh, have a YouTube page so you can see what we do and get involved. But the number one call to all of you truly is if you want to make the world a better place through your art, just go do it. Go mm. do it. Give that gift away. Because, you know, I'll close with this, this quote from John Wooden, who was the UCLA basketball coach. Um, he said, you know, the, the things that we want most in life, you know, freedom, happiness, peace of mind, they so often come back to us when we give them away. You know, he, he would mm. say, give it, give it away to get it back. So make what you want to see in the world, give it away and then be willing and ready to receive how it comes back to you, probably a thousandfold more than you ever expected. I, yeah, there's nothing more to say. We're and mic drop, done. Bye, VJ. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. We appreciate you. And we appreciate everybody who watches and listens. Make sure you subscribe or like or all of those things that you have to do to make sure that you know that we have a new episode live on Facebook and YouTube every Tuesday and then on all podcast platforms on Wednesday. BJ, thank you very much. Thank you so much. We will see you later, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Arts for the Health of It, a podcast produced by Hearts Need Art, creative support for patients and caregivers in partnership with the National Organization for Arts and Health. You can help others learn about the healing power of the arts by subscribing, sharing, and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen or watch. The podcast is hosted by Richard Wilmore, co-hosted by Constanza Rader. Our theme song, Songbird, is written and performed by Natalie Lane. Visit heartsneedart.org to learn how you can support our mission to create joy with people facing life-altering health challenges. Join us next week to learn more ways you can create arts for the health of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Heart Scene Art, their staff, board members, or other affiliates. All content is created for informational purposes only. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice or to diagnose and treat any health condition. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health professional with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you heard on this podcast.